Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Keener, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there, Candace. Hey, Jane. You know, a couple of months ago, we did a podcast about the civil rights movement. And what's interesting about Martin Luther King Jr.'s ideals is that they weren't entirely unique to him. He actually got a lot of his inspiration from Gandhi. And we really should have honored Gandhi as, as being the man who planted the seed of uh, nonviolent protest in King's mind, but we didn't. So we're going to backtrack a little bit and talk about Gandhi and one of his most successful campaigns and really one of the most successful campaigns in history because it served to incite what would be the tail end of the Indian revolt against British colonial rule. Yeah, and we started talking about that a little bit with the podcast on the East India Company. We mentioned the Sepoy Rebellion. Uh, and we also said that it, the uh, fight for Indian independence probably deserves its own podcast. And I'm starting to think it deserves many podcasts because um, what we're going to talk about today is only a small fraction of that fight. But going back a little bit to the Sepoy uh, Rebellion, that happened in 1857. And it was sort of a, uh, a revolt against the East India Company, uh, which was sort of Britain's sanctioned monopoly over the trade in that area. And it had, uh, by this time, gotten a very uh, oppressive rule over India. And the sepoys, who were uh, soldiers in the army for the East India Company, they were Indian soldiers, revolted at that time. But unfortunately, that revolt failed. More than that, afterwards, the British decided to dissolve the East India Company and instead would uh, rule India directly. And this started the Raj and direct British governance of the Indian subcontinent created very, very much a hostile environment between the Indians and the British because their own culture was essentially oppressed by these new administrative policies that the British brought in. And the British instilled all sorts of taxes and laws to govern these people and keep them under their thumb. And one of the items that they taxed was salt. And it may sound irrelevant to us today, this idea of taxing salt, because many of our doctors tell us to reduce our salt intake, eat low-sodium versions of our favorite foods. But um, in India especially, the climate being so hot and humid and contributing to so much sweating, salt was incredibly necessary as yeah. an additive. So a long time ago, when people used to hunt animals, they would get most of their salt from raw meat. And then as people shunned the sort of hunter-gatherer lifestyle for more permanent establishments on farms and turned to a diet of meat and plants, they had to add salt to their diets because salt is very necessary in our bodies in order to orchestrate electrical impulses of fire among our nerves. And it's considered a great way to generate revenue for governments uh, throughout the course of history to tax salt because people need it not only for sustenance, but also as a preservative. And this is before the dawn of refrigeration, of course. Um, people have just been using salt for years. And so the idea of the British coming into India and taxing salt, which is so necessary to the culture, was seen as a great tool of oppression over the people. Yeah, because their, their diet is chiefly vegetarian there as part of uh, religious rules as well. So uh, so obviously they needed supplementary salt uh, in particular. Like you said, governments historically taxed it 
if you remember back to our podcast on the French Revolution, this was actually one of the biggest things that caused that as well. The the salt tax there was known as the Gabelle. And people actually tried to get rid of it for a while during the French Revolution after that um, took place. But by Napoleon's time, they actually had to reinstitute it. And so most countries by that time were still using the salt tax. Ironically, however, uh, the UK was one of the first countries to get rid of their own salt tax. Um, not really because of protests against it, but because it became uh, salt became an important mineral in the Industrial Revolution for economic reasons. So at this time, a very important historical figure emerges, Gandhi. And uh, he was born Mohandas Gandhi, but he became so revered by the people that they called him uh, Mahatma Gandhi. And essentially, Mahatma means great souled. And he did have a really great soul. He preached nonviolence and peaceful protests, and he believed in the idea of civil disobedience. And we mentioned that Martin Luther King got a lot of his ideas from Gandhi, and Gandhi, in turn, got many of his ideas from Leo Tolstoy and Henry David Thoreau. Yeah. And Thoreau, of course, is very famous for his essay on civil disobedience. But you could also say that um, even though you can see these roots, like Gandhi was really the first one to, to really put it in play. And he uh, he uh, promoted what was at that time a very revolutionary idea. I mean, you never have a country uh, overthrowing its government through peaceful uh, uh, means only. I mean, that's just incredible to think about. And so accounts of his protests, you can see that the way that the British forces respond to these nonviolent campaigners who are doing sit-ins or hunger strikes, it's, it's really horrifying, the idea of them being beaten into submission, but they're already pretty submissive because they're protesting by peaceful means anyway. It was just astounding, and Gandhi really thought that this could work. So, um, as we mentioned, the salt tax was a major issue and it became a major symbol of, of the British oppression. And Gandhi himself saw it as a uh, particularly um, hurtful for the poor man. And so these were the reasons why he uh, set out on a salt march. And he set out from uh, a place called Sabarmati Ashram, which was uh, one of his dwellings. And he, uh, he set out with about 78 other people. Although more joined along the way because the the whole uh, trip was about 240 miles and uh, covered between 10 and 15 miles a day. Uh, so that makes it um, about 24 a day march. And it's it's pretty incredible to think Gandhi was 61 years old by this time and he was not in the best of health. But I've read historians say that like. He was actually walking so fast that some other people, younger people, were actually um, having trouble keeping up with him. He was such like an energetic and uh, devoted man, obviously. And so as he passed through different villages on his way to the Arabian Sea, he would encourage officials to resign from their posts and he would encourage other people to join him in his march. So after his 240-mile trek, when he reached the Arabian Sea, he did something that by government standards was criminal and incredibly insolent. He actually gathered salt from the ground and he encouraged everyone else to do the same. Yeah, and that's one thing that's amazing about the salt tax we should mention is that you couldn't buy salt without the tax, but you couldn't gather your own salt from the seawater or from natural deposits along the sea. That was that was an illegal act. So Indian laborers who worked on the coast especially, sometimes they would labor near huge natural deposits of salt. And at the end of the day, they would have to go into town and actually pay 
for something that they could have gotten on their own from mm-hmm. the land that was surrounding them. Yeah. So the idea of collecting your own salt was incredibly revolutionary, and it led to thousands of arrests for Gandhi's followers. It's really interesting to think about what what was going on uh, in Gandhi's mind when he came up with this idea of a salt march, because, you know, he didn't have to walk, you know, and I mentioned he wasn't in the best health, and he could have just taken a train or a car uh, to the coast to pick up some salt. Really, in, in crude terms, it was a big publicity stunt, really. And he knew what he was doing. He knew how to work uh, publicity in the media to to make his point. And this is what was so effective about it, is that, like I mentioned, um, he covered 10 to 15 miles a day. And this is a kind of relatively slow, not only because he stopped in villages, like you mentioned, but also because he wanted to give the media chances to catch up, make their story of the day. And um, the New York Times actually covered it almost daily. And uh, this is one of the things that made it so incredibly effective. And long before the Salt March in 1930, Gandhi had had a pretty extensive political career. He started out with a law practice in what was then Bombay, and it failed. And so an Indian firm sent him to a post in South Africa. And in South Africa, Indians were so poorly mistreated, especially those of the, the lowest caste, that he started uh, campaigning for human rights and political rights And 20 years he spent in South Africa. And when he came back to India, he joined the campaign to get Indian independence from the British government. And the Indian National Congress actually appointed him to an executive position in 1921. But his tactics didn't really work against the the British because they were so violent that Gandhi, I think, for a while started to recollect his ideas and really reevaluate how he was going to accomplish his goals. And so after he was imprisoned by the government, he gave up on politics. And he said, you know, I'm done. And, you know, it's funny because Thomas Jefferson said the same thing. He was done with politics, and then he went on to become the president of the United States. Oh, I can't believe you tied T.J. back in. T.J. to Gandhi. <laughs> and uh, so by 1924, when Gandhi was released from prison, He was trying to give up this life of politics, but he was so deeply ingrained in what was happening in his country, and he cared so much and was so innovative in his ideas, and the people revered him to such a high level that he couldn't not do anything. Mm -hmm. And so, like Jane was saying, at 61 years old, it's it's not like this was a ripe time in his life to launch a revolution, but he did. And he wrote a letter to um, Lord Irwin, who was the Viceroy of India, and he actually asked Irwin to abolish the salt tax, and he told him that if he wouldn't, he was going to go on this march, because this was part of Gandhi's ideology. He was going to make his intentions clear. He was going to do it in a very peaceful way. And... um, That was a pretty brave thing to do. It was. And not only that, he actually wrote to Irwin, I regard this tax to be the most iniquitous of all from the poor man's standpoint. And what made his protest against salt so unique, and I think what really brought him back into the political sphere, is that he attached to this idea. And if he was using the salt march as a sort of a a media campaign, as you are suggesting, Jane, salt was the perfect thing to protest. Because no matter your level in society, whether you were the richest of the rich or the poorest of the poor, you had to have salt, And whether you had the money or you didn't have the money, certainly you were irritated that you were paying for something that was growing in natural deposits around you. So salt was it. Salt was the word. And like you said, Gandhi was a pretty important public figure at this time. And so uh, after he wrote this letter to Irwin, 
Um, Erwin pretty much, he, he knew what Gandhi was going to do. He could have just gone and arrested him before he started this. But that in and of itself would have caused such uh, an uproar um, because Gandhi was such an important public figure. And this is what also made uh, some of uh, uh, Gandhi's other campaigns so effective as well. Um, you've probably heard of his camp- like uh, hunger strikes in prison. And uh, during that time, you know, you might think, well, you know, hunger strike, what does it matter if, like, what what do the, the British care if Gandhi kills himself, you know? But it was very important to the British because it would have embarrassed them um, a lot if uh, if Gandhi died of, of hunger in this in this uh, strike against uh, British oppression. Especially since, like you mentioned, the rest of the world was watching yeah. at this point. He had everyone's eyes on him. And you can even see um, photographs of his march, and he's wearing very humble attire. He's wearing a loincloth and a shawl and some very cheap-looking glasses. And, you know, he's obviously a man who shunned all material possessions and with this great sense of, of peace and purpose, he's marching, gathering his followers and essentially turning the tides on the war for Indian independence that had long ago sort of been concluded with the British saying, no, this isn't going to happen. And Ghani was able to change a lot of people's minds and get enough people on board to subvert um, the government. And uh, Irwin and Gandhi actually signed a pact that legalized the collection and manufacture of salt. And then the government later lifted the salt tax after the pact was signed about a year later. Yeah, so that made it one of his most successful campaigns known to history. And um, it was one stepping stone in the ultimate uh, independence that India got in 1947. So a a salty and very rich history. Yeah. (laughs) And if you are enjoying the history you hear on our podcasts, you can get a daily dose on the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog. Yeah, Candace and I write on this uh, once a day, and uh, we write about modern uh, history uh, news going on and uh, stuff in, in the media that interests us and that has a, a relevance to history that we think you'd be, you'd be interested to learn as well. So when you visit the blog, be sure also to check out this article, Why Did Gandhi March 240 Miles for Salt? on HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. <laughs>